Well, I think that what we're trying to do is destroy the triggers in the air that have been linked to these types of problems, right? So this is where the field of medicine is evolving to is let's not just try to solve at a symptom level. Let's go to the root cause of what's causing these problems to happen. And the fact that, by the way, the EPA said decades ago that indoor air can be up to five times more polluted, like that, that tells you something about the fact that we're living in environments where we're trapping ourselves with pollutants. And so, yes, we can take medication, we can take other things to maybe get at a symptom level solution. But what is happening and what, what are we doing about the triggers in the air that can impact us really deeply? And that's where this technology and what we started doing at Molecule came into play. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Take a second. Take a deep breath. How do you feel afterwards? Today's incredible founder is tackling the problem of indoor air pollution, something you probably didn't know, but something that's massively contributing to poor performance, health, and longevity outcomes when it comes to all of us. We have Jaya Rao on the program. She's the co-founder of Molecule, a company that's raised $38 million to fix the problem of indoor air pollution, according to, I believe, the EPA, but Jaya references it in the podcast. There's five to 20 times more pollution in indoor air than there is in the outdoor air we're breathing. This is something you're breathing and living in on a daily basis, and the outcomes and health consequences are terrifying. We'll dive deep into them. In today's episode, we'll discuss the true epidemic of air pollution worldwide and why it kills 3 million people a year, how mold, toxin, and allergies lead to shorter lifespan and disease, why we need more women and diversity in tech and government and how to do it, public transit from a public policy perspective, which tech trends worry Jaya the most and why, and some of the big problems with the smart tech, health tech, and smart home movements today. Before we jump into the episode, take a second to leave a review on iTunes, disruptors.fm slash iTunes. Help us with the gorilla when it comes to podcasting so we can grow the audience, grow our awesome guest base, and be able to make this into something that reaches more people and makes a bigger impact. That's what this is about, is to make a global impact. I think we can do it. We're up to around 7,000 strong, and we need to make our number much, much larger to make this into something that can change the world. Help us do that, disruptors.fm slash iTunes. And consider sharing the podcast with a friend. If you've got a loved one, a friend, someone you think who would enjoy listening to an episode, send them one. Say, hey, I was thinking about you, thought you might like this. They might love it, and if they do, you'll get all the credit. And just maybe we can make an impact. Without further ado, I give you Jaya Rao. Are you going organic, keto, paleo, some type of diet for incredible performance? You want the healthiest foods delivered to your doorstep fast and easy? Well, you should check out today's show sponsor, Thrive Market, the best organic online grocery store in the States. They've got gluten-free lentils and breads, chemical-free cleaners, organic coconut milk, all at up to 50% off, delivered to your door with a subscription to Thrive Market's awesome online health store. Listeners get a bonus 25% off their first order, up to 20 bucks when you use our link, disruptors.fm slash thrive. Check it out. They've got just about everything at rock bottom prices for, for best in class quality, regardless of how you're eating. And I know I switch it up. I'm sure you guys do as well. Disruptors.fm slash thrive for more details. I spent all day today writing. I love coffee, but I hate jitters. I was at Starbucks, and I'm a little bit bouncing off the walls. That's why I'm pumped to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Four Sigmatic's Lion's Mane Blend. If you haven't tried Lion's Mane or the other awesome mushrooms that this Finnish company is putting out there, I definitely recommend it. Between the podcast, books, startup coaching, and life as a dad, I need to be switched on and creative in a big way. And Four Sigmatic's proprietary blend, it's got only 40 milligrams of caffeine for creative, natural, drug-free productivity to power your day. Without the crash, side effects, or addiction. And you know what? The flavor, it's awesome. Listeners, if you go to disruptors.fm fs, you'll save 10% off anything from Four Sigmatic. They've got some incredible superfood blends. I recommend checking out their Four Mushroom blend as well. And you know what? You'll get free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Again, that's disruptors.fm 
slash FS. Use offer code disruptors to save 10% and to take it to the next level. Tim Ferriss recommends this to everybody. Jonathan Levy, one of the awesome guests we had, our Superhuman Academy all-star, he loves it as well. And it's powering elite performers like you everywhere. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So, Jaya, Molecule, what's the what's the deal? Why did you decide to tackle air pollution? Why is that actually a big problem? Well, that story starts in kind of an interesting way. My father was a solar energy researcher for many years, very well established in the field of academia and solar energy, but started looking at air purification, not just as a scientist, but as a father. My brother suffered from really severe asthma and allergies growing up. And so it was after he saw that problem that he felt like we should be doing more to clean the air because he saw his asthma and allergies flare up from all the triggers in the air and and in his environment. So he began what became a 20-year-long research journey into the field of air purification to understand one very fundamental thing. Today, we're able to filter things with traditional filters. We're able to filter big particles out of the air. But what about all of these microscopic pollutants that make their way deep into our lungs and affect us very deeply? How can we get rid of those permanently and completely? So that was what started this, this research project for him. And what it culminated in was a technology that works fundamentally different from what you have on the market today, in that we're able to destroy pollutants at a molecular level for the first time. So why that matters is because we're starting to see, you know, at that time when he was researching this pro- this problem, you know, the EPA had put out the stat that indoor air can be up to five times, in some cases, even a hundred times more polluted than the air outdoors. So he was really troubled by that, especially given my brother's asthma and allergies. But since that time, we've seen the problem is only growing and it's growing massively on a global scale, not just in the um, indoors, but the outdoors. And, and they're both interrelated because the air that we breathe is connected to the outdoors and indoors, vice versa. So, so it's a big problem. We're seeing air pollution on the rise globally. Lots is changing in our environment. And finding an air purification technology that actually works was something that we all felt was compelling and should be out in the world. Which is interesting. We all, you founded a family-run business. Before we get into some of the other stuff, what's it like building a business with the folks? You know, it's funny because we started as a family-founded company. Yes, like that was, it was me, my brother, and my father who are the original co-founders of Molecule. While we were family founded, today, if I look at Molecule, we're, you know, globally distributed. We have offices across the world, you know, people working in specialties like operations and manufacturing all the way to R&D to, you know, the, the finances and marketing of the company. So there's so much happening. We're such a bigger team than what we started as. But, you know, it's always been, I think the part of the fam, the part of us being a family rooted us in this extreme passion for wanting to solve this problem because we had felt the personal impact of what it, you know, I got to see my brother suffering from asthma and allergies, and it's not something that I ever wish for anybody. And yet millions of people around the US, billions of people around the world are suffering from the problems of these respiratory illnesses. And yeah, most of them go undiagnosed, correct? Yeah. So today, I think only 80, I mean, it's still a large number, but 80 million allergy sufferers have been diagnosed in the US. But, you know, the number of people who complain about things like seasonal allergies, which, by the way, are becoming perennial, according to allergists and physicians all around the world, these allergies are are morphing and, and changing all the time. But most people try to medicate their way out of the problem and don't even you know, necessarily go to a doctor to solve that problem. But it is a problem. It, it does affect our quality of life, you know, from things like, you know, I'm feeling stuffy in the mornings, all the way to, you know, in a meeting, if you're feeling tired, that might actually be attributed to the air quality and not necessarily the nature of the meeting. 
And technically speaking, if you're getting allergies, if you're having issues from this, it's going to be something to do with inflammation, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a lot of, so one thing that's happened in recent decades is that research on air quality and the impact of air quality and health is going deeper and deeper. So, you know, for some, some of us, the very sensitive parts of the population, you know, that the impact of air quality expresses as I have an allergy or I have an allergic reaction to pet dander or some sort of pollutant in the air, uh, be that pet dander or be that mold or, or something worse. For others, it manifests in different ways. So we have now started linking through the research that we're doing on air quality, we started, started linking uh, finding the link between air quality and heart disease, diabetes, cancer. And the reason is, is that, you know, we we breathe all the time. And in that, in the breaths that we take, we're taking in mass from the air. That mass, the really small particles goes deep into our lungs and from our lungs can go into our bloodstream. So there's this huge connected impact that we have from the air we breathe that we're only just now starting to figure out. So it's kind of like how most people have some type of intolerance to wheat. Most don't realize it. Some have celiac and can't touch it at all. But it's in general kind of a sliding scale between the extremities of how much or how little of something you can have. I know with a lot of the inflammation based, I mean, inflammation's kind of been attributed in a lot of ways to aging and most chronic diseases. That would mean that what you guys are doing in terms of trying to fight that is very directly, you're probably not going to be able to say it because of FDA regulations, et cetera, but very directly tied into aging disease, et cetera. Well, I think that what we're trying to do is destroy the triggers in the air that have been linked to these types of problems, right? So this is where the field of medicine is evolving to is let's not just try to solve at a symptom level, let's go to the root cause of what's causing these problems to happen. And the fact that, by the way, the EPA said decades ago that indoor air can be up to five times more polluted, like that, that tells you something about the fact that we're living in environments where we're trapping ourselves with pollutants. And so, yes, we can take medication, we can take other things to maybe get at a symptom level solution. But what is happening and what, what are we doing about the triggers in the air that can impact us really deeply? And that's where this technology and what we started doing at Molecule came into play. And if you put a Band-Aid on a dam long enough, eventually it breaks. What's it like building a science startup where you guys have fundamental technology and you're going about it in a hardware sense? You're kind of doing the two terrible things that you're not supposed to do as a startup in terms of incredibly cash intensive. What's it like raising money for a business like that and scaling it? Yeah, well, I mean, you're right that there's there are a lot of challenges. But one of the things that Dilip and I, my, my brother and I came into this this entire company with the mindset of was that we grew up, you know, seeing our father in a university setting, and we saw all of this innovation, tremendous amounts of innovation happening that was ultimately sitting on a laboratory shelf. People weren't taking it and commercializing it because the steps to commercializing these technologies are either incredibly difficult or larger companies that would license it would just shelve the technology and say, hey, we don't need to do that. For us, we came into this with with a great amount of passion that we want to solve one thing. We want to make sure that people can breathe clean air, as simple as that. And so I think that the passion then led us naturally to find the next step and the next step and the next step. And so we, um, you know, we knew that we had, you know, luckily when we walked into the picture, because we had seen this evolution of the technology, our father had already spent a lot of time figuring out how do you take this laboratory technology and pilot it in a manufacturing setting. So we had already figured out one of the hardest steps, which is how do you take that lab technology and actually put it on a manufacturing line in a scalable way. And so we had that going into you know, actually forming the process that all happened in, in, in an academic laboratory setting. When we got started, we started talking to investors who had an interest to take on really large challenges. I mean, we found really like-minded individuals who, who believed in the vision of what we were laying out and weren't afraid to take on something as bold as, you know, not just hardware, but scientific innovation. And that's where, that's where I think we had a meeting of the minds and, and really got started. 
And how do you recruit a team for something like this where there is, I imagine, a longer term payout until you get to some type of exit potential? A lot of startup employees are joining for the equity, for the thought of being acquired or going public. I feel like this would take longer personally. Yeah. I mean, for us, it was always, there's been this component of the mission and the vision that has inspired all of us, myself included. I mean, it's, it's, it's about knowing that there has been an industry, you know, the, the, if you look at what the industry is dominated by today, a HEPA filter, it was invented in the 1940s as a part of the Manhattan Project, by the way. So it's a really, it's a really outdated technology. And it's something that you would think we would have, we would have evolved past given that what we've done in computing, given what we've done in so many other areas of innovation, but we've kind of gotten stuck on this really fundamental problem. And so when we started looking to, to, a, to a team of people to come together, it was about, you know, of course, there was a weeding out process, you have to be, you have to be willing to take on that challenge. And you have to be willing to go deep on, you know, if you're a designer, if you're a marketer, if you're a um, operations and manufacturing person, you have to go deep on the science to be able to do it justice and help it exist in the world in the right way. But if you're able to do that, then, you know, look at the problem that you're solving. And I think that was what our team really signed up for is we want to solve this problem in whatever way is possible. Talk to me about air quality and pollution stats, specifically deaths. I know a lot of them are happening in the third world, but just talk to me a little bit more so we can get a concept of the scale of the problem. Yeah, well, I think it's like 3 million people every year die from air pollution. Like it just, it's it's astronomical, but you know, it's, it's funny because a lot of people like to attribute that problem as, oh, it's happening in Asia or it's happening somewhere else. It's not happening here. But the American Lung Association put out a recent stat that in the past two years, 7 million more Americans are breathing unhealthy air. So there's a there's a huge and growing problem here. I mean, in the I you know, we're in the San Francisco Bay Area. In the past two years, we've seen hugely devastating wildfire events where the pollution levels were the the worst in the world. I mean, the what you were breathing in a period of a week was massively more than, you know, a normal day in Delhi. So and Delhi being a really polluted city. So it was an eye opener. And I think it, it helped all of us realize that, you know, pollution doesn't have borders, the air we breathe doesn't have borders. So what we're breathing in one region doesn't stay there, it travels. And we're starting to see all of that compound on each other to the point where now a lot of organizations are raising the you know, ringing the alarm bell saying, hey, we need to do something about the air that we breathe. Is there a way we could take the tech that you guys have been working on and scale it up for more large scale outdoor solutions? So, you know, part of what what went into being a science company is that we're continuously evolving, right? So we launched with a home air purifier, which you can find on our website today. And that cleans up to 600 square feet. But it's, you know, the technology is evolving. We're putting it in, in, in newer and other spaces as we go. And the point of that is, is that we're evolving the technology to be able to address bigger and bigger challenges with air quality. And the way that we're doing that is we're looking at, you know, inside of our device, we have our core technology exists on what's called a PICO filter. So our core technology is called photoelectrochemical oxidation, or which stands, which is summarized in just PICO. So that PICO filter um, basically has a catalyst that's coated onto the filter surface. And when that catalyst sees light generated from LEDs inside of our device, it creates a chemical reaction. That's what allows us to destroy pollutants. So we've been able to destroy pollutants at a certain level of efficiency today. That's our generation, our first generation of PICO technology. But in our lab, we've unlocked Gen 2 and Gen 3, and we're bringing that out into our manufacturing processes so that as we have these innovations, we put it into our filters and we ship it out to customers. So that's part of what's happening here. And all of that innovation is helping us advance and evolve the technology to the point where you don't, you won't just be scrubbing the air like traditional outdoor scrubbers do for trying to clean the air, but you can actually 
fundamentally take the bad stuff in the air and convert it back to its original, more natural form or, you know, less harmful form. What do we need to do to get this to a price point that first everyone in the US and then everyone worldwide could afford one of these? Because right now, they're kind of expensive when it comes to especially a third world worker, that's not going to happen. How do we get this to the point where people can have democratization of clean air without killing the bank? Well, I would say there's two parts to that. One is that, you know, people are as you know, people are are waking up to the fact that hey, that something is wrong with what I'm breathing and I need to do something about it. And for for something as, you know, when you start looking at all the costs of what happens to your life because of the air that you're breathing, the investment pays for itself and I'll explain this why. The the reason for that is that you know, the cost that you pay to move a home because it's mold infested, the cost that you pay to get sinus surgery because something is wrong with your nasal passageways. I mean, people are paying these costs all over the world. That's in India, that's in China, that's in the US. People are going through to extreme lengths to be able to do something very fundamental, breathe. So for, you know, when you compare it to that, the cost of this air purifier is nothing. And what it's delivered for people, the the stories that we've heard back from our customers is that it's helped them massively cut down on a lot of the things that they're already spending on. Now, that's, that's at a personal, very consumer level. But for us, we look at scaling up this technology in a way where Tomorrow, you won't have to think about if I'm walking into a hospital, am I walking into a hospital that has clean air or, or not? You'll be walking into a hospital that has, you know, pico clean air. If I walk into an office building in my conference room, if I, you know, go to a daycare facility, if I'm traveling on a plane where, we're, where we know that we're getting exposed to things that we shouldn't be, I should be breathing clean air. And that's something that, you know, we look at the brands that we buy into as, as making massive shifts towards clean air. So I don't, so that myself and others don't have to worry about it. I would say you have a little bit of a filter when you think about this, though. I feel like a lot of people don't think about air quality almost at all, with the exception of being stuck in traffic and closing the windows. And I don't know how we change something like that. How do do we make a societal shift on a big problem where kind of like data privacy, people don't know or don't care? Well, I think it's, I think it's starting there. I think it's starting at we're stuck in traffic, we're closing windows. It's something that people already recognize. I mean, we hear it from customers every day. It's people recognize that, hey, you may not say air quality, but you may recognize it as there's something musty in the air. It smells bad. You know, the, the ways that we think about air quality are, are really more tangible. I see dust everywhere on the floor. It must be in the air. I think we're starting to, as a society, understand that. And then the world is kind of, you know, what's happening in our environment is forcing a lot of people to understand more about what's happening. You know, like I said, you know, the the West Coast, California has seen, you know, wildfire events two years in a row, the plumes of that smoke blanketed the entire nation. That meant that you weren't just breathing wildfire smoke in California or in Oregon or in Washington, you were breathing wildfire smoke in New York. So, you know, we're starting to understand that these events that are happening in our external environment, you know, be it wildfire smoke, be it, you know, mold that is caused by, you know, the, the water damage from hurricanes, those things are affecting our health. And that's how we understand air quality is that there's things in the air that I really relate to that impact my health. How do you think about the effect on climate change with the pickup that we have now in terms of health technology and where entrepreneurs need to be headed and looking with the big problems we have facing us? Yeah, I mean, that's a big challenge, right? I think that I, I think one of the difficulties that we face with climate change, which is also an opportunity, is that there's a lot of there's a lot that needs to be done. There's a lot of innovation that needs to happen. And so as an entrepreneur, you can look at that and say, okay, now there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity to make the world, you know, make the environment better and safer. And if we were able to extract a lot of wealth from from the world around us, you know, to create the computers that we have today, the phones that we have today, we can tap into that same place of innovation and figure out how to put that wealth back into the environment so that our environment is the best it can be for 
human progress. Does that need to be in terms of more taxes and some type of government or multi-government agency doing that? Or does that need to be something that entrepreneurs can tackle? Where do you fall on that spectrum of socialist, pure capitalist slash um, libertarian in terms of solving some of these big and seemingly insurmountable challenges? Yeah. So I, um, interestingly enough, am also have a background in public policy and decided to become an entrepreneur a kind of in a unique way in that like on the spectrum of, you know, for me, I want policymakers to do whatever policymakers do. As an innovator, I want to solve the problem. Like we, I, the, the, where, where Molecule sits and where our company really thrives is that we believe that these are solvable challenges. We just haven't, you know, like, like I mentioned, my father's technology was sitting on a laboratory shelf until we decided to come and make it a reality. So for us, it's about what, what do we need to do in material science? What do we need to do in chemistry and physics to be able to solve the problems of the environment? And that's what we're trying to build into the heart of our manufacturing. That's what we're trying to build into the core of our company is, you know, in order to solve these problems, whatever, whatever policies regulatory makers make, they're going to need to rely on innovation to get us out of this slump that we have with the environment. And so, you know, no judgment on the solution. I think that for us, we just want to make sure that we're innovating to find, you know, the next the next big breakthroughs in science that allow us to, to help our environment. And speaking of your work with public policy, I know you are involved in public transit. Talk to me a little about what you were doing, how you see the evolution of driverless cars and these electric scooters, and where we head to in terms of transportation. Yeah, so you're going back uh, uh, a ways back there. So before Molecule, I was doing uh, some work with a group out of uh, the Stanford Design School mm-hmm. called Change Labs. And our job was to look at, or you know, our mandate was to look at how do you take really complex, really interconnected issues that are on a global scale and actually solve them. And one of the things that we learned or we were trying to do is, you know, part of the problem in solving these these issues is that we're not necessarily going to the root of the problem. We're solving surface level things like, oh, great, we'll just have, you know, um, some, you know, we've been trying to build mass transit in, um, in California for decades, and yet we haven't been able to get something between LA and uh, like a train between LA and San Francisco. So it's a complex problem. Our job was to go at a layer deep. So what is causing that? Why can't we make these massive shifts as a society. And for me, part of what Molecule is doing is addressing not necessarily transit, but it's going at part of the problem is, is that innovation often doesn't reach consumers and that innovation gets stuck in laboratories. So, so the way I look at mass transit as a problem, the way I look at mass transit as a solution is how do we take laboratory level innovations and bring them to consumers so that we can actually get at the root of solving these problems. So we got Larry and Sergey, they're trying to fly. We got Elon, he's trying to dig. We've got electric cars. Where where are you putting your chips in terms of California and then in terms of larger scale public transit systems? Not necessarily in the US because it's just not built for it, but worldwide. I mean, I would say that like let them all let everybody try. I think that that's the point. I think we need to try a bunch of different solutions. We need to see what works and find a solution. Like I don't believe that one person has the right answer. I don't think that I think that there is some combination of what everybody is doing. That's the point of what we've created is that, you know, we've created the laboratories of experimentation in these companies. I'm curious to see where they end up. For us, you know, for Molecule, where we're, what we're trying to do is something very similar. Like we have a technology that we believe can, you know, in all of these, in all of these environments, make the air safer and cleaner for people to breathe. And I want to see, you know, we want to try to take that solution as far as we can. So I wouldn't, you know, I think that's the entrepreneur, that's the innovative side is like, you want to see every solution tried to its maximum extent. It's only then will that will actually solve these problems. It's a little politician too, not wanting to pick who you think is going to win, but I'll give you a pass on that one. 
So let's get into smart homes a little bit. I would say what you're doing is not exactly a smart home tech, but you guys are kind of getting into that. I am. I could very much see you guys wanting to get into that in the future, but that's neither here nor there. But what do you think about the advancements that we've had now in terms of creating smart homes with these Alexa systems, these Google systems? You can get the lights, you can get we've people, well, a lot of people are putting these speakers into their homes. Where do you think we're at now? And where do you see us going in 10 years when it comes to the, the smart home? Um, I mean, you know, one of the things that I think about, like, I didn't start out as a tech person. And I still don't claim to be a tech person who understands, you know, a, a vast part of these innovations. But I think what I can understand and what our company aims to understand is what do what do people ultimately take away from this? What do they understand from this? For us, that means that, you know, basic things like I have, you know, I have a one-year-old son. I have a safe environment for my one-year-old son. I have two dogs. I want to make sure that they're safe. Like it's, it goes back to what are our basic needs as humans and how are we serving that? So if a smart home is enabling peace of mind, great, like let, there's going to be people out there who are going to be innovating in that space. Good for them. I'm more concerned about what's happening with the environment that people are living in. Are people getting safe, clean air to breathe? Are they getting safe, clean water to drink? You know, all of the basic needs as human beings. And as much as a smart home, as, as much as smart home technology can enable that and make sure that I have the comfort uh, that, you know, not just the comfort, but the safety that I need in my home, then I think it's really exciting. So where we're going with our with our smart home tech and, you know, with our connected ecosystem is one, basic, clean the air, but two, try to make sure that at a very deep level, we understand what's in the air that's causing us harm and work with researchers out in the world to understand, well, how does that affect us at a, at a deeper level? What's the health impact of that? Because we still actually only understand a fraction of this and we will in the coming decades understand a lot more just like we did with food, just like we did with exercise and water, we will understand a lot more about what's in the air we breathe. And that's where Molecule will be spending more time and investing more of its energy and effort so that we can make sure that people have a really holistic image of what meet, what meets the requirement of a safe and healthy environment. What about you as a person? Are you wearing any wearables? Are you into the quantified self movement? Have you got your DNA tested? What have you done personally to stay healthy outside of the air stuff? Um, I know. And I think that that's where I, I haven't done a lot of, you know, I have a Google home at home, but beyond Do you that, trust it? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? I don't, I don't have any, I mean, I think that there's generational differences on where this technology is at. For my generation, I think a lot of people are comfortable, but I don't, the, the point is, is that like, I feel like uh, there's a lot of conversation on the on the coasts of the US about what smart home technology means. And there's a lot of the country that's still looking for much more basic needs to be met. I mean, that's where that's where we as a company, that's where Molecule gets excited is because, you know, we want to try to serve that population of people who is, you know, living in public housing projects and is breathing bad air, who's living, you know, who is getting, you know, people who are buying everyday manufactured materials that are, you know, we know because we've seen manufacturing environments that those manufactured materials off-gas carcinogenic chemicals, and then they get packaged in a box and sent to people's homes. Like that's, that's a concern for us. Those are the problems that we want to address. Well, I think all of this innovation will support that ecosystem. And we're, we're definitely, we look at the ecosystem that's created, being created with smart homes as allies to what we're doing. We still know that there's, there's everyday problems that people in this country and other countries globally are facing, whether it be simple things like, you know, the air we breathe or water damage from, you know, a, a leakage that's causing mold, the water damage itself, like homeowners and people who live in apartments have tons of challenges that have to be met. And those are the challenges. And that's the space that I want to focus on. How do we deal with that growing disparity between the, for lack of a better term, upper classes and lower classes when it comes to income inequality, which is getting bigger and bigger, especially thanks to tax exponential nature? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that I could answer that question with justice in you know the the time that we have because I think it's really complex. I think that it's 
I think it's one that it, it takes policy, it takes, but it doesn't just take policy. And that's something important to remember. It also takes innovation. I think the policy has to keep up with innovation. I think that policy a lot of times has been lagging to where innovation is at. But innovation, what innovation means is that it means you can have, you know, clean air at lower prices in every building. It means that you can make things more accessible to people that weren't before. So I think we're getting there. It's going to take time. Innovation also has a lot of work to do. Like science still has a lot of work to do. And part of my job at Molecule is to see how we can accelerate that. Like I had, I had seen, I, you know, I mentioned this earlier, I saw my father sitting in a laboratory trying to say, how can we get the cost of solar to a point? And he's still looking to how can we make sure to get co- the cost of solar down below where fossil fuels are at today? How can we make sure that we can have, you know, clean energy resources deployed in mass across the world, I think that these answers are now coming to fruition in laboratories. Our job at Molecule is to make sure that it doesn't get stuck there, that we're able to take that technology and bring it into people's lives so that it can help reduce that disparity so that we can make sure that, you know, you don't have to be living the, the idea that you have to live next to a highway because that's where the, the cheapest housing is, but then you also have to breathe all of the emissions from those cars and vehicles is, it, you know, is, it makes us sad and we want to do something about it. And that's where we look at technology as a gateway. So not all entrepreneurs have the awesome scientist dad that's creating something incredible. How can other entrepreneurs get into the university setting and find technologies that are being created or have then have been created and commercialize them? Because there is so much great IP out there that just hasn't been capitalized on, which could benefit the world. Yeah, I mean, I would say that like we just happened to, it wasn't just my dad, right? It was all of these other professors who we got to see growing up, who I circled back to actually many years later after we met them, you know, after there was a get together back in Gainesville, Florida, and I would ask these professors like, hey, what happened to this, you know, this technology you were working on that, you know, would cut energy costs in in dryers, for example, in washer dryers by up to 50%. Like, well, nobody ever commercialized that technology. So I think that I think that academics are constantly looking for channels and ways to get their technology out in the world. They don't necessarily want to be the ones to have to do the job to create the company around it and commercialize it. But, you know, so so I think that for entrepreneurs, there's an opportunity to tap into university settings to leverage the innovations that are there. And I also would say that one other one other insight that we've had is to still, even if you leverage them, to make them part of the journey. So, you know, have their voices at the table as you're creating something, because one of the most difficult processes that you have is taking a laboratory technology and transferring it with its with the original intent intact. Because a lot of times you have a technology that works really well in a small scale, but you have to make trade-offs as you scale it into manufacturing. And the important part is that is you make the right trade-offs. A lot of times people will go, you know, too fast, too quickly without talking to the academics and the scientists who created this to say, hey, what's the right trade-off I could make? And so that's where we've we've had that that insight. And, you know, I hope others can also share that insight. What trade-offs did you guys have to make? And how do you think about them? You know, the trade-offs that that we make, the types of trade-offs that we think about are the ones on on the product level, right? So we know that our core technology, we would never make, you know, we would keep that at its with its original intent. But the types of trade-offs that we have to make on, you know, when you transfer this over from a laboratory setting is the device that encapsulates the technology also, you know, behaving in the way that the scientists had envisioned. Today, if you look at the air purification industry and you look at the way filters are made, a lot of times you think, well, you didn't even think about the basic science behind this air filter, which is that, you know, you want air to actually flow through the filter. There's a lot of air purifiers that are made today with filters that aren't sealed. And so air will 
supposedly go through the filter, but a lot of it will, a lot of the pollutants will just bypass the filter. So, you know, that's, that's a, that's a engineering and product and, and manufacturing person saying, hey, we could save 50 cents on the cost of this device without putting a gasket where, well, the answer is no, you should put a gasket. So knowing what trade-offs to make, there are still ways to make a product cheaper. There are still ways to make sure that you can hit the cost targets that you're trying to hit, but it doesn't have to be at the cost of does the core technology work or not. Outside of the technology that you guys are working on, what technology or trend are you most excited about and why? I recently went down a a really fun rabbit slash wormhole of of looking at companies that are interested in plastics recycling. So, you know, what gets me excited about molecules, we look at how to take pollutants that are harmful and convert them back to, it's, it's really what nature is already doing, converting something harmful back to what its original form should be. It's just that nature's time scales take a long time. And so I've been looking at startups that have been taking, you know, plastics that are polluting our oceans and waters, and how do you take that and convert it back to its original substances that weren't originally harmful. So I think a lot of where innovation is going to come is that, you know, like I mentioned, we've been able to take a lot of things out of the, the, the earth, the environment, but putting them back is going to be really interesting, putting them back in ways that we can reuse them so that there's a really sustainable cycle to everything that we're doing. That's going to be exciting and interesting. When you IPO this company or get acquired and you ultimately become rich and successful, what type of companies are you going to invest in? Will you be one of those startup founders that comes back and angel invests? Will you go on to do something else? Do you have, I imagine you don't have a second project in mind. And even if you do, you wouldn't be willing to tell me because your investors might double or they might second guess your intentions. But what would you focus on as an investor if you did have the funds? I think that, I think it would be to have a much, I mean, for me, the the future that's that really excites me is much broader and bigger in vision. So how do we bridge out of just looking at private sector innovations and public sector work as two separate ecosystems, but start creating alliances and coalitions to solve big problems? So, you know, if and when there there would be a moment to do that, then that would be the time to create coalitions to solve some of these big global problems. Like I grew up with a father who, you know, was researching solar energy and I still feel like that vision has a lot to go. There's still a lot more to do on it, but I don't think that it can be done alone. So investment back into the coalitions that can solve climate change that can make sure that we can put, you know, have clean oceans. That's where I think there's a lot more to be done. And that's what I, where I would focus my energy. There's a ton more to be done there. But there's also the flip side. How do we deal not with the coalitions, but with Amazon selling facial recognition software to immigration or whatever Peter Thiel is doing in terms of helping round up people that are may or may not have been deemed undesirable by certain governments. How do you think about big tech working with governments when in a lot of ways it violates what we feel seems right when it terms of means to be human? My answer to that is going to be a little bit odd because I don't, I I think that the solution to that is injecting more and more diversity into the people who are at the helm of these decisions. I think one of the things that, you know, being a female founder has given me a lot of insight into it and also having a male co-founder and having an extremely diverse team within our company is that the only way you can solve and tackle some of these complex issues is by having a complexity of thought at the table to think through all of the potential harmful and negative side effects. You won't be able to do that though if you have the same type of the same group of individuals looking at the same problem in the same way. So, you know, all of these things that you're talking about have like really complex implications. And so I think the first thing to do, which, you know, is now starting to be talked about more, but the bar to, to, to get there is still really high, is how do you bring together a, div- a diverse set of people, you know, in a government setting, in a private setting, 
to talk about these issues because that's the only way you'll get enough ideas at the table. Which is really challenging when all your politicians are old white guy senators and lawyers. It, uh, it creates some it creates some dynamics. Have you ever had that situation where you are at this point a successful female founder? You're building a pretty awesome company. Did you ever have challenges in terms of with investors, board members, etc.? You don't have to name any names, but in terms of building the business or any types of things that you don't think your male counterparts would have had to deal with. Yeah, I mean that's I, I think that I. <laughs> I did my BS in mechanical engineering and my master's in mechanical engineering. I was one of five girls in a class of 100. Like I've seen this problem for a while. I've seen I've seen the challenges. I I certainly think that what's come out of it is a better version of me. I think that, you know, I've evolved. I cer- I don't want that to be the case for the the next group of girls that comes through the these challenges. They should be focusing on external challenges of solving some of the world's greatest problems but you know but it's an everyday struggle and what's interesting i think what's exciting is that there is a moment in time now where things are changing and i'm seeing from both sides i'm seeing you know men and women come together to hear each other's perspectives and i think that started for me within you know the time span of building molecule where you've seen just a massive shift in people saying, hey, we need to hear women more, but it's become more of a dialogue. So I, I think that's where a lot of change is already happening. There's a lot of people who are willing and excited and coming to the table. And look, the people who aren't, who are not there yet, who are operating in you know a different model, like innovation will surpass them. So I think that the the thing that people are starting to realize is that there is an opportunity to get to move faster by doing this. We certainly see it at Molecule. I think others are catching on to it as well. I know I studied mechanical engineering as well, so I'm very well aware of what you were talking about. If I was to give you a magical wand to try to fix this problem, and that's not to say we should have 100% 50-50 parity in all professions. I don't think that makes sense because people have different preferences. But in terms of making the situation better in a lot of the industries that matter, especially tech, how would you go about doing something like that? I think the first, the very first thing I would do is focus on education. I, and, and the reason is this, I think that one of the things that, that prohibits, it's not just women, it's not a gender, it's not just a gender thing. It's a, it's a mindset thing. It's a, it's a, I mean, people, people across the world approach problems in very different ways. And today, you know, what we've created is a world that has to think in, you know, one very specific way. You know, a lot of it is very methodical in nature. Like if you have to solve a problem, show me the data, show me the, you know, show me exactly step by step how we're going to solve it. But there's this other side of us that leads through intuition. And, you know, I've talked to so many women who have a natural intuition for, hey, this is how something should be done. So I think that the only way to get people to start, you know, engaging on this issue is to get get an appreciation for the different types of ways of thinking. And it doesn't have to be, you know, that a female always leads through intuition. I've seen a lot of men who lead through intuition, but we don't teach how do you lead through intuition in schools? How do you leverage an internal voice? And I think that that'll start changing and start creating diversity at at boardroom tables because we'll be able to appreciate different vantage points. Not only do we not teach that, I would say we actively discourage that and focus much more on a what can you prove? How can you write the mathematical proofs? Where did you find the sources, et cetera? We separate things out versus taking a more holistic approach. Now, what is one thing that I should have asked you about that I just didn't? I think that, you know, the thing, the thing that not just you, but I think anybody should ask is, you know, in the next, like, with the air that we're breathing, is this a solvable problem or not? And I believe it is. I think that we're getting closer and closer to solving this problem holistically. But the fact that the but the fact is, is that you know, is the air that we're breathing today acceptable or not? And is it solvable or not? And speaking of both of those in terms of how to present that, if we had other entrepreneurs out there that were looking at raising funding, what would be the advice that you would have for them? Just stay completely passionate uh, about what you like, hold true to your beliefs. If you have a passion, you know, don't give up on it. It sounds so cliche, but it's it, it is true. Like I think that you know things innovation and and technology comes out of 
a fundamental belief that you really want to see something in the world. And when you put that belief out, you'll naturally start going on a path that will take you there. How many no's did you guys get? And who was the first person to say yes? We got, yeah, we got tons of no's. I think as everybody gets, everybody gets tons of no's. Just, there's a finite amount of investors out there and they have to pick and choose um, uh, from for, many companies. For people that haven't tried though, what's, let's have context. Is that 10? Is that 100? Is that 1,000? Just so they can realize what it takes. Just a rough estimate. Um, I would say it's in, in hundreds. It's not thousands. It's not tens. It's more than tens. So it's somewhere between tens and hundreds. But that's, I mean, we also got, I think there was a, a real moment of luck. I mean, keep in mind that there was 20 years of no movement, right? I mean, there's 20 years of a lot of academic progress, but there was 20 years of only academic progress. So there was a lot of that before that my father experienced, but for Dalip and I, we experienced, you know, tens to hundreds and happened to come across an unlikely, actually now seems very likely, but a really exciting investor, Jeff Clavier at Uncourt Capital, who was unlikely because he was at, we were in our incubator and he was there for um, mentor night. So you wouldn't expect an investor to be there. He happened to just decide to attend that at, at, to attend at mentor night. So we were talking to him as though he would be a mentor, found out later on he was an investor and decided to give him our device, our, our, you know, we had a literal black box at the time and we gave him the black box to test for him and his wife. And he had a, he had another air purifier at the time and became a big believer and got excited about how the technology had impacted his wife's life, his son's life. And so that's how we got started is that that was our initial, you know, he led our seed round and so that was all kind of serendipity. Jeff's a great guy. I had him on our other podcast, The Syndicate. And he's uh, he's done some very impressive stuff. I have one last question for you before we start to wrap things up. And that's, if you were going to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, before you tell them where to find you, what would it be and why? That's a big one. I think uh, I think the one thing I would say is... This is good. It's going to be cliche, but but believe in yourself. I don't think I don't think that point is. It's somebody else said it, not me. Somebody much wiser than than myself said it. But believing in yourself is something that we don't emphasize enough through the journey, and it is so tough. And you will have many many moments of self doubt and many moments of feeling afraid. And and the only thing that will power you through it is is belief and faith. Because no one else will believe in you if you don't believe in you. Jaya, thanks for coming on today. Where's the best place for people to find out more about you, your company, and what you're doing? Yeah, you can go on uh, molecule.com. That's uh, spelled molecule with a K. So M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com. The typical startup fashion. And of course, we'll have links and everything in the show notes, guys. Disruptors.fm. If you enjoyed this, make sure you check out Molecule. Check out what they're doing and consider leaving us a review in iTunes. Disruptors.fm slash iTunes. I know it's terribly clunky and painful, but if you do that, that helps us a ton and I would greatly appreciate it so we can get more awesome guests like Jaya on the program. Thanks for coming and thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Thanks Jaya. Thanks. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact. 